Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to continue our time together in the Sermon on the Mount. As a bit of a lead into this morning's text, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 this morning. But as a lead into this morning's text, I, I want to propose to you that even though we've looked at a lot of different things in the Sermon on the Mount that have been pretty difficult for us, this might be the most difficult text. This might be the most difficult text, and not necessarily because of our society, although that certainly plays into it, but just because Jesus calls us into a depth of relationship here with him uh, that, that we cannot have apart from uh, the work of the Spirit in our hearts and our minds. So if you're in Matthew chapter 6 and you're looking at verses 19 through 24, these, these verses are pretty familiar to us. We'll probably read them. There's only a couple of times so far in the first couple years of Buffalo City Church's existence where we preached on uh, the same text. Uh, this is going to be uh, a one of those times. We preached on the, I preached on this text about a year ago when we were talking about finances and being good stewards of what God has given us. Um, but this morning we come to it sort of in, in step with where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's good to, as we look at this text, as we get to verse 19, it's good to think about where we've been. Where have we been in the Sermon on the Mount and what has Jesus told us? And as we've been together in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus' concern. What is Jesus concerned with primarily? He's concerned with the motivations of the heart. What are the motivations of of the heart. Where does obedience come from? Maybe that's the question that we can ask. Where does obedience come from? From wanting to obtain something or from understanding that something has already been obtained? And we as Jesus followers must, we must, must, must understand that our obedience doesn't earn us anything. So when we come to a text like this and Jesus says the first two words make us think to ourselves, he says, do not, do not. It's something to not do. It's an omission. It's some way that we should not act. But it is a understanding of what comes before and what has compelled us to this point, uh, what compels us to obey God and God's goodness shown to us in Christ Jesus. And what we're not talking about is temporary earthly blessings like we'll see here as we process this text together. What we see is not temporary earthly blessings, but we're talking about the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ took on flesh, that he died in our rightful place, that he came to save sinners through his work on the cross. And we must say, look at God. Look at what God has done. Even though sin disrupted all that was intended for us in Christ Jesus, even though sin disrupted that, when Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit in the garden, God said, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bring you back to me. And what I originally intended is going to be restored, even if it costs me my son. And so that's what he did. And for that, he gets the glory. So when we get to a text like this, sometimes our focus is to say, not look at what's been done, but that what we should do. Like I said, it begins with do not. It's an omission. It tells us what not to do. But we have to remember where we've been again, where we came from in the Beatitudes, that we are, as those who are in Christ, those who are favored by God. The Beatitudes are pronouncements of favor over God's people. And those who are therefore must pull back the curtain to show the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? That is our task as those who have been favored by God. We're called to be salt and light into a world, um, to, to pour salt into the wounds of the world and to say there is something greater than what the world can offer to you. We must live righteous lives, empowered to live complete lives through the Holy Spirit. And in that we're rewarded. 
finding in that. God is making himself absolutely available to us. And he wants to reward us as those who seek him as our reward. So we have all of the weight of that behind us. We have all that weight of that behind us. And then we get to this text. And now we see very clearly that Jesus is concerned with the heart. And we'll see that he even talks about the heart and the eye also. Which for his followers and the hearers, his Jewish hearers, would have been similar in nature too. So for the second time in chapter 6, he's going to tell us about the use of our finances and tie the heart directly to it. We saw that right at the beginning of chapter 6 when he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you, have no, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he talks about giving to the needy and doing that in secret. And the reason why he talks about finances as something that can derail us um, from treasuring or favoring or seeing God as all, uh, all that we need, because it's a thing that we can pursue other than him, and maybe we can maybe even begin to glimpse the goodness that it can provide for us, but it makes promises to us, wealth makes promises to us and we can quickly buy in and it promises us health and happiness. It promises us sustenance and status and it promises us power and pleasure, but it always falls short without exception. Without exception, it always falls short because when they're tossing dirt on our casket when we're six feet under, so it's all going to be in someone else's hands. So let's read the text together. Look at verse 19. Let me read these verses for us. Jesus says, Do not lay up yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what I want to do in our time together in this passage is sort of work backwards through it. I'm going to work backwards from where Jesus ends, go up to the top uh, in verse 19, and end, end there. Well, at least just take them in sections and work backwards section by section. But, so first, we're going to look at verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The idea here is single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. We must be a people who are single-minded. We only have one track, and that's uh, Jesus. Only one way that we can think about what we have here on earth, and that's subject to who God is for us in Jesus Christ. No one can serve two masters, he says. As Christians, I think that we've bought into this mentality pretty regularly that we can have our cake and eat it too. That we can have our cake and eat it too, but Jesus isn't about to allow for that. And the question is why? Why was Jesus, why would Jesus make such a black and white statement? Because God demands all of us. And for most of for most of my adult life, for most of our married life, Rebecca and I have been married for nine years. For most of our life, I've worked multiple jobs, sometimes three. I think there's only been a year or two in our married life where we haven't been working multiple jobs. 
Um, now, to get degrees and to make ends meet and do everything that's necessary to get all of that done, those things just need to happen. But it, it kind of makes things hard. It makes it hard to keep things straight. You're at one job, you answer the phone and say something completely different, the place that you're not at. U.S. Bank. Nope, I'm somewhere else. And it becomes hard to get things straight. At the very least, your attention is divided when you're employed in two different places. But Jesus doesn't want us reporting to two different systems. Jesus doesn't want us to report to two different masters. He, wants us, he doesn't want to split our time between two different kings or rulers, between two masters. He demands all of us. And so the warning is clear when it comes to money. He ends it by just saying, you cannot serve God and money. If you serve that bank account, you're not serving Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. And the problem is that with Jesus' second point is that the word serve here is a little bit dumbed down. And when I say a little bit dumbed down, I actually mean a lot dumbed down. This word serve is, is really dumbed down. And our translations do us a bit of a disservice by, by taking that word and making it serve. Because really, I think what it's trying to communicate here is not employed by or dedicated to, but it means enslaved. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be ruled by two different things. And that language is uncomfortable to us, the language of slavery, but it's essential to our understanding of what Jesus is communicating. So the question here that Jesus is asking us or that we need to ask ourselves as a result of what Jesus says here is, are you enslaved to money? Or are you enslaved to Christ? And that language may cause some discomfort, again, dumbed down, maybe because of the assault against the image of God in the early part of our history in the United States. But we could easily translate this, this verse, verse 24, we could easily translate it. No one can be enslaved to two masters. You cannot be enslaved to God and money, or maybe this, no one can be enslaved to two lords. So we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. That's to whom we pray. And we take that a little bit lightly when we say it. When we sit down and pray for our food, we might take that a little bit lightly when we pray to our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we say Lord, we are saying we are enslaved to Christ. So Jesus' words here are about what you're bound to. In recent church history, we've experienced a very different set of problems than for the most of church history. I won't bore you with the details, but the question that's posed is, can I take Jesus as my Savior and not as my Lord? Can I claim Jesus and just get saved from hell and then do the things that I want to do? Can I ignore him as my king and my master and my Lord? And this passage puts it to rest. This one verse embedded in the Sermon on the Mount puts it to rest. Because as someone who has received the free gift of salvation, it simply is not possible to serve or be enslaved to two masters. If there is something that tugs at your affections or your attention or your desires, if there is something that you long for more than God, then you are attempting to do just that, to serve two masters or to be enslaved in two different places. And like Jesus says, he will hate the one and love the other, either devoted or despise. 
And you say, well, it's not that black and white. It really is. Jesus makes it that black and white. And the problem is this. We can call Jesus our Lord, and and no spoilers, but we're going to get to a passage in chapter 7, probably after the first of the year, but we're going to get to a passage in chapter 7 where Jesus, and you're going to say, we're going to take that long? No, we're we're going to step aside for Advent and stuff like that. Don't worry. It'll be cool. Um, In chapter 7, Jesus, in verses 21 and 23 through 23, says this. Not everyone who says to me, this should be a huge warning, a shot across the bow for us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, we look at that and we're like, boy, that's harsh, Jesus. But it's the same word here, master. In verse 24 of our passage, just saying, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean anything. And look at what these people appeal to. Look at what they appeal to. They appeal to it with the things that they've done. They appeal to the places that they've gone and the things that they've done in his name. We prophesied and we cast out demons. And we did mighty works, and all in your name. And Jesus' response, he calls them workers of lawlessness? Why? Because when they said, Lord, Lord, they referred to something other than him. And the point of this text, this text in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, this text is not to scare us, but to stir up our devotion for God. Because... Where they appealed to their work, we appeal to Christ's. Where they say, look at the amazing works I've done. We say, Lord, Lord, you have done amazing works on my behalf. And we'll be intimately tied to Christ and even enslaved, if that's the language that he wants to use, we'll even be enslaved to him as our king and our master and our Lord. The New Testament doesn't talk about being obtained or purchased or bought so that we can love money. In Acts 20.28, Paul is charging the elders of the Ephesian church and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and care for the church of God, which he, what does he do? He obtains it with his blood. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, and 23, Paul writes to that church, for he who was called to the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a, Christ, with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. The ESV translates that word in the Greek, which is doulos to bondservant, but it means slave. And we trust and we must allow that to carry the weight behind that when we read it. And this is all offensive. This is absolutely 100% offensive unless you consider where you were prior to Jesus. There is nothing that you, to say that you were enslaved to sin, Satan, in the world. And then which was offered to you, this world offered you this shiny stuff, but it left you empty. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and ordered something and you're super hungry and you order it and they bring it out and it doesn't really taste that good and it's a really small portion and you still feel hungry? 
That's what it's like being enslaved to sin, Satan, in the world. We need, we need a well-balanced diet. Fruits, veggies, protein. But when we are enslaved to the world, all we're getting is chocolate cake. And it tastes really good, but we're wasting away. But we're wasting away. Jesus purchases us back, buys us back with his blood, and demands everything from us. Jesus is saying, verse 24, there are two options. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's either God or money. And here's the deal. To be enslaved to God, this is it. This is the way that the Bible paints this picture for us. To be enslaved to God is to have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe who created you to glorify him through that relationship with him. And the currency he bought you with is not man-made, is not printed on paper, but is established by the blood of his son, And he gave you everything to bring you to himself and to bring you home. Your master, your Lord, is also your father and your savior and your friend. But to be enslaved to money or the things of this world is to have a cold, isolated existence. Devoid of intimacy, although you will try to experience intimacy in all sorts of substitutes and the pursuits you give yourself to will decay and break down before your eyes and death will come and demand your dues and it's money. But the money that your master and your Lord has paid for you is not the currency that it wants and it will take you to an eternity separated from your creator. Friends, there is no greater kindness, no greater mercy than to be enslaved to Christ. So we walk it back up the page then to verses 22 and 23, where we see that Jesus says the the, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. And that's a confusing statement in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. But the reality is, if we think that we can serve both God and money, we're just not seeing things clearly. That's what Jesus is saying. If we can think that we can serve both God and money or God and anything else, then we're just not seeing things clearly. You're rejecting what we just talked about in verse 24. But my money, my possessions, they make me happy. I can call something other than Christ my Lord. And Jesus says the eye is is like a lamp of the body. And if you're perceiving things correctly, everything is good. Everything is good if you're perceiving things correctly, but if you're perceiving things incorrectly, you will be stumbling around in the dark. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it. He writes this, As the eye must be single, clear, and pure in order to keep light in the body, as a hand and foot can receive light from no other source save the eye, as the foot stumbles and the hand misses mark, its mark, when the eye is dim, as the whole body is in darkness when, when the eye is blind. So the follower of Christ is in the light only so long as he looks simply to Christ and nothing else in the world. Thus, the heart of the disciple must be set upon Christ alone. If the eye sees an object which is not there, the whole body is deceived. If the heart is devoted to the mirage of the world, to the creature instead of the creator, the disciple is lost. And so it's a simple concept really. Is your heart devoted to the mirage of the world? to an illusion, things that promise you the good life but can't deliver. 
We say to ourselves, if my, if my life were just that way or this way, I'd be happy. If I just had that thing, I'd be happy. If my husband were this way, I'd be happy. If my wife just did this, I'd be happy. If my job looked more like that one, I'd be happy. And the world says, devote yourself to the vision of the good life. Change your life. Get that thing. Change your spouse. Pursue your dreams. And you scale the mountain and you find more emptiness. You find chocolate cake and your neurons fire and, you're, and you're, you salivate like Pavlov's dog. In an hour, you're wondering why you dedicated your life to chocolate cake. Or you can find that you can't even scale the mountain. The dream that you thought that you could achieve, you can't even scale it. and You can't change your life. You can't get that thing. Your spouse is the same person. Your dreams were out of your reach and you despair. And when you go to the mirage of the world, you stumble into more emptiness, a desert, a desolate wasteland of the soul. But when your eye sees past the mirage, when it sees things clearly, when you look to the living water that Jesus offers, the true bread of life, you are satisfied. But it costs you the mirage. But friends, it's an illusion. Everything the world says that you need, everything that the world says that you need is an illusion. You get your hands on it and you find out that it was nothing. Compared to what God has promised you, it's nothing. When you successfully wrap your arms around it, it's disappearing before your eyes. And your satisfaction, guaranteed, will disappear right along with it. So back up the page again to verses 19 through 21, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures on earth where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus demands, he doesn't just make a suggestion here, he demands that the follower of Jesus does not store up treasure on earth, does not accumulate earthly wealth. Not because he doesn't want you to be happy, but because he wants you to be eternally happy, eternally satisfied in him. As a parent of young children, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old, I start almost every sentence in our home with do not. Literally every sentence and usually, I like to think this, I hope this is true, it usually comes out of kindness for my children. I think that's where it comes from most of it. I say, do not chew on Legos. Do not jump off the top bunk. And notice then the kindness of Jesus here. He says, do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. This is a kindness. This is a kindness. What am I supposed to do, we ask. Jesus, we ask this question all of the time in a Christian life. What am I supposed to do? And Jesus tells us right here. If you're wondering what direction your life needs to take, look no further than this. Do not lay up treasures on earth. He could have left it at that, but again, he loves us so much that he gives us the why. He says, I want you to understand and know why. Why is he going to say, why does he say this? Why does he say, don't do this? Because he gives us a reason. Moth and rust destroy and where things can get stolen. 
and say kindness for an authority to explain why. Jesus could have said, do not, and his disciples could have said, why not? And he could have said, I'm God. That's why. We used that one before. Because I'm dad. But he leads us gently. He restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And when he tells us that the stuff we're after is breaking down or could get stolen, that's the kindness of our king, the kindness of our master, the kindness of our Lord. We can become so infatuated with the illusion of wealth or health or power that we could quickly forget that any of those things can be torn away from us in a moment. And this isn't a reprimand by Jesus. This is a loving kindness. And again, though, he doesn't leave it there. He gives us the positive alternative action to take. If I tell my kids, do not chew on Legos, do not chew on Legos, you could choke if you swallow one. Instead, build a house with them. You will not choke if you're building a house. This is the structure. Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. Positive alternative action, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. These things are immune. The treasure in heaven is immune to decay. It's immune to thieves or to be taken from us. It cannot be taken from us. So we ask the question, what does it mean? What does that mean? This text personally has given me more fits than any text in all of Scripture because what does it mean? What does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven? It's this see through the illusion. That's not very helpful. It's a little abstract still, but we'll get to something more practical in a moment. See through the illusion. Don't be, don't be so dense. Don't be so stupid to think that something that's temporary could satisfy an eternal desire and need in your soul. Did you just call me stupid? If, if you're laying up treasures on earth, then yes. I didn't say it, the text said it. Calvin says it like this, but if we were honestly and firmly convinced that our happiness is in heaven, it would be easy for us to trample upon the world to despise earthly blessings and to rise towards heaven. This world has nothing to offer you. You must believe that. God has granted you all things in Christ. Yet we dedicate our time to accumulating fuel to be tossed on a fire and say that it makes us happy. And a desire for rotting wood has no purpose to be burned. A small, pathetic desire that needs to be replaced by a desire for precious metals. And see through the illusion to God's goodness and mercy shown to you in Christ Jesus. Do you not think that in a million years, in a million years into eternity, that you will care about that house that you bought with the bigger kitchen? Do you think that a billion years into eternity... You think that the rest that you find there in paradise will compare to the vacation that you got to take? Do you think that a trillion years into eternity you will care that you got your dream job? It's not a stretch of the imagination to say that those things will not matter. And here's what will matter in eternity. You will see clearly just how desperate your state was prior to Christ. 
and the immensity of the sacrifice that God made by allowing his son to pay your penalty so that you could be there in that place with him and so that your desires could be met and you would continue to desire more of God. And you're going to have all of the money of Bill Gates and all of the ingenuity of Elon Musk and all of the influence of any world leader and it won't amount to anything. And so Jesus makes an impactful and jarring statement in verse 21 where he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this statement ties us back to what we've been talking about in the previous weeks at the beginning of chapter 6 where he's talking about giving and praying and fasting. This ties us back right up the page to what he's talking about. Your treasure is that which you pursue in secret. Your treasure is that which you pursue in your quiet moments, in the depths of your heart. Generosity flows from an eternal perspective. The wealth of the world is small compared to the wealth promised to me in heaven. Prayer flows from an eternal perspective. A deep, abiding relationship with God is is direct result of an understanding of what he has prepared for me in heaven. Fasting flows from an eternal perspective. The satisfaction of this world is small and does not compare with with what God has promised me in heaven. And so as we conclude this morning, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is one question. Where does your mind go in your quiet moments? We ask this question a whole host of ways as we spent time in the Sermon on the Mount. Where does your mind go in your quiet moments? The things that you have to get done to keep your job or to get that promotion or make more money. The things that you really want to accomplish so that you can relax. The things you wish you could, uh, the wish you think you could uh, uh, do to be healthier, improve your body image. What are the things that make you content or satisfied or happy? If they're here on earth, see through the illusion. Look past the mirage. There is only one thing that can make you happy. Eternity in the perfect relationship with your creator, God. And that doesn't mean you can't be happy now. Don't hear me say that. You just walk out of here, oh, you don't want to be happy. That's not what I, I'm not saying that. That wasn't you. That was me. That wasn't, yeah, okay. You can be happy now. But the way to be happy is to think about the promise of an eternity spent in perfect relationship with God and pursuing that above all else here on earth. And allow that truth to alter everything that you do. Allow that truth to shape you, to change you, to turn you into the person that God is shaping into his, the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And taking the focus off you and firmly fixing it on Jesus, the only one who has transformed you and is transforming you, is the only way to get the only thing that matters. And so, again, practically, you may need to kickstart this process. If you go out of here and just say, what am I thinking about? Okay, what comes next? What comes next? I say, you need to kickstart this process. I'm just give you a couple of ways. One, just be generous with everything that you have. Be open-handed with everything. Everything that you have, hold with a loose grip. Give your money away. 
And some of you may need to write a check and drop it in the basket this morning. By writing that check, you're not sure how things are going to come together this week. This is a matter of following Jesus. Or maybe you know someone in your world who is in a difficult financial situation because of a silly decision that they made. And you need to write a check and hand it to them and demonstrate mercy to that person. And I'm fully convinced that sacrificial generosity will transform us as a church. If you're unwilling to do any of these things, then some, some serious thinking about where your treasure is needs to take place. And secondly, being generous means just being available to people and serving others until the tank is empty and then, and then, and then, and then some more. If Jesus was our example... He decided to, he did not decide to care for himself. If, if Jesus said, if Jesus said, I need to care for myself, then he would have never died. And we would still be hellbound. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. God came to earth. He emptied himself. Emptying yourself precedes serving others. Plain and simple. There's no way around it. That's the biblical understanding of serving others and loving them. So be generous with everything. So that's one way. Be, be generous with all that you have. A second way, we're going to speak to the young people, decrease your social media activity. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. We all need to hear this. Young people, we need to hear this. When I say young people, I'm talking about like people in my age demographic. You know what I'm saying. Every time, I'm not kidding. Like, you have like these little ads on Facebook that are tailored specifically to you. They're tailored to me too. It was like, grow your church to 5,000 people in the next 24 hours. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? That's, that's nonsense. But it's pulling at my heart, right? It's, it's going after something that I want in my sinful stat, status, in my sinful state, in my flesh. Yeah, boy, I'd love to. Let's fill that room over there. Click, yeah, $49.99 a month. Yeah, let's do it. But seriously, in all seriousness, social media is pulling at our heart. Like it's pulling at our heart. We look at, we go to Instagram and we see a picture of the, our friends' kids that we saw in high school. Boy, they're cute. Are kids that cute? I don't know. Maybe not. What can we do to make our kids cuter? I don't know. Maybe it's the water. We have to start thinking about the fact that our treasure oftentimes is dictated by that which we give to ourselves regularly. And so we need to decrease our social media activities. It's always trying to sell you something. And we get bogged down in these silly comparisons. We get bogged down in these silly comparisons. I have to have this or that or have my kids look this way or my husband look that way to be happy. Those jeans from Old Navy... Whatever. Old Navy. Not true. Social media makes a really strong play for our treasure to be something other than Jesus. So we need to decrease it. You don't have to cut it out. Just be aware. Maybe take a little less time on there this week. Give yourself, boy, this is pulling at my heart and wants me to treasure something more than Jesus Christ. So finally, this morning, we're going to Think about what we think about in our quiet moments, and then we need to kickstart the process by being generous. And, and, and there are a whole host of other ways. We can talk about them forever. But finally, what we need to do is just realize and think and believe in our heart of hearts that Jesus is better. Like, what does it mean that Jesus is better? 
That's what this text is about. Like, if you, to, if you say, what is, what is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 about? I see Jesus is better. In all of this, we must see that Jesus is better. Better than promotions, better than houses, better than cars. Better than having cute kids on Instagram. We need to grow in our desires. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We have to grow in our desires. It's not so much that our desires are bad things. They're just small. If your desire can be met with something that's temporary, it needs to grow. Pray this week that God would grow your desire into something that can't be met with a new toaster, but that's something that can only be met with him. And ultimately, we see that Jesus is better because where we fail, he did not. Because where we fail, he did not. He didn't waver. His treasure was in heaven. His focus was not broken by temptation. You see Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he's led out into the wilderness and he, he goes out into the wilderness and Satan tempts him. And the things that he tempts him with are temporary satisfaction and earthly, worldly status and power. And Jesus looks right through the illusion. He looks right through the illusion. And he sees that he is on a clear path. And the illusion of temporary worldly power and satisfaction are not going to hinder him from that. That's our example. And when Jesus' ministry drew to a close, Hebrews, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us that it was the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross and to despise its shame. It was the joy that was set before him that caused him to bleed out for you. Because by bringing you back into right relationship with God, you are glorifying God the Father. And maybe you're here this morning and you're hurting, and this is hard to hear, because it looks like there's something here on earth that can dull this pain. There looks like there's something here on earth that can take this away. There's just physical pain or emotional trauma that you suffered. Or you're just exhausted by what the world has thrown you time and time and time again. You're just beat down and broken. Earthly things, let's be honest, earthly things can take the edge off. It can dull that pain. It can slow it down. But friends, it's going to come back and it's going to come back hard and fast. Earthly treasure and temporary fixes are a mirage and an illusion. There is a heavenly treasure and eternal, soul, and an eternal satisfaction and an eternal solution for our wayward souls. And friends, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is better. Let's pray.